Good morning. We need a Bible to hang with us, so raise your hand if you didn't bring a Bible this morning. The guys will bring one to you. Mike's running the center here, and Brian and Ian have some as well. They'll bring a Bible right to where you're sitting. Keep your hand up. In the first service, I told you to raise your Bible if you needed a hand, and uh, it was very early for me, so uh, I corrected that for this service. Keep your hand up if you do need a Bible. There we go. Also, take out the handout sheet in your bulletin. And you will notice that today's lesson is entitled Knowledge of the Holy. And any time I ask you the question, and where did I get that from? The answer is always, you ripped it off. Okay, that it's kind of a call and response thing. Well, it's our version of liturgy. Okay, so I say, where did I get that? You ripped it off. Okay, it works out well. I don't have a lot of great original ideas. Knowledge of the Holy is the title of a book by A.W. Tozer, a guy who's really smart only because he has initials in front of his name. And uh, we've decided as an elder team I can never do that because my initials spell Elsie, which sounds a lot like a cow. So anyway, no matter what happens, I can't sign a book, Elsie Han. That doesn't work. So anyway, I'm going to have to go by Lance for the rest of my life. But I titled today's lesson, Knowledge of the Holy, Rediscovering God as He Truly Is for a Specific Reason. When I told you that we were going to go 2006 as the year of holiness, I explained that there are some steps by which I want to engage with the holiness of God. Just someone walking up and telling me I need to be more holy doesn't help me. It doesn't actually change my life. It doesn't do anything. And I don't think that telling you to do the same will help you at all. But I think equipping you with all the things that God has for us, that might help us to live holy lives and to see God as holy. And the first step of that is to raise God back up to His rightful throne. To see Him as high and majestic and exalted. To be able to see Him as mighty and wonderful. It seems that churches seem to slide to one of two sides of the pendulum. We all have to be extreme one way or the other way. On one side of the paradigm or one side of the pendulum... Is churches like the Greek Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, or the sometimes Methodist or Episcopal Church. And you slide on one side of the pendulum, and they see the greatness of God. As a matter of fact, if you do any study in architecture throughout the centuries, the great cathedrals throughout history have been designed with one purpose in mind. And the purpose is to make God appear great, and you to appear small in comparison. It was not about building a building that was bigger than the one next to it. The cathedrals were huge to create an atmosphere. So when you walk into these great cathedrals, the ceilings are absolutely huge. And you look around and everything, the paintings are big, the mosaics are big, everything is big. And the idea is that you walk in and feel the grandeur of the king. And in many respects, they do that very well. A more modern version is a church which I heard about that they designed their church with a full glass back to it. So while you are listening to the preaching or engaging with the word of God, you're looking right past the pastor, right into a beautiful scenery where they face the mountains. And in the winter, the snow would cover the mountains. And so basically you're staring on his creation. And you'd say, well, is that effective? I don't know. It could very well be. 
The difficulty is, is that in many churches that focus on the greatness and hugeness of God, you don't ever feel like you can approach him and you don't ever feel like he's personal. So you slide on the other side of the scale and swing back on the other side of the pendulum and you have churches similar to Calvary Chapel, churches that are much more grassroots in nature. And they're very much about personal connection with the Lord. It's not about what you look at. It's not about ornamentation. It's everything about the heart. And so you look at that and you say, well, gosh, they meet in a warehouse. That's where we're meeting today. And you can see it's not exactly the grandeur up there. That's why we painted it black. So you couldn't really see it. It's a lot of tubing and stuff. Okay. This is not about fancy ornamentation and rich, luxurious rugs and things like that. We very much focus on the internal. However, on this side of the spectrum, we lose the awe of God. And it seems like no matter where you swing, there are positives and negatives to it. And I wish sometimes that we could restore the awe and have some type of understanding of the grandeur of God. Well, because we are in a church that largely focuses on the internal, I believe that it's necessary for us to raise God back up. And that's what we're going to try to do today. Today is about rediscovering God for who he truly is. Let me share a quote with you. It is not in front of you. The quotes in front of you are to read when you get bored. The quote that I wanted to read is by A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just soak that in. I'll say it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most telling fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. That's us. That's what we seek to do. We want to discover God afresh. What is he like? What has he done? The problem is, is we run right into a brick wall starting this. Because if you say, well, Lance, tell me what you know about God or tell me how to restore the awe. Tell me about his attributes. Tell me what tell me what he's like. Well, we have difficulty. Number one, my personal failure in this area. You are following a pastor who had to apologize to God last night before the service as I prayed and knelt down before the Lord and had to apologize because I said, Lord, I have to go read books from other guys to be stirred towards awe again. That's embarrassing. That's humbling. I have a really hard time with awe. I'm very practical in nature, even though I'm a dreamer by birth. 
I examine, I study, I engage with God every day. I preach and teach him. It's almost like I'm his ambassador running about trying to tell everybody else what he thinks and how he handles it. And so when you come to me and say, Lance, do you fall on your knees in awe? And do you see the majesty of God? My answer to that is, unfortunately not. That's a weakness. But I can either remain proud and pretend that I do. Or I can humble myself and read books of men that do see it and bring those to you. My awe comes from reading the Word of God, and so that's what we're going to do, is read the Word of God. But the difficulty in describing God is, for example, when you read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, a man that I agree with a lot and disagree with a lot. As you read his book, he begins his description of God with a word transcendent. The word transcendent means so far beyond. In other words, no matter how much you try to grasp God, he's too far beyond anything you can imagine. So how do you begin by saying God's like this? No, he's not. He's like that and so far beyond. You can't say that God is powerful because that's absurd. He's more than powerful. You can't say that He's sovereign because that He's so much more than sovereign. You can't even say that He's all-knowing. You don't even know what all-knowing means. Have you ever thought to consider what eternity is like? And after your brain cramps up, you give up and go to bed. We don't know. As I studied the book under A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy, he starts out with the word incomprehensible. You can't ever get it. He is not like anything you've ever experienced. He is not compared to anything. You cannot wrap your minds around God. But listen to me clearly. You do not want to serve a God you can handle. Amen? If you have a God that you can deal with and you can get and you can wrap your hands around, then you better be afraid. The problem is, is that we serve a God of our own making. He looks a lot like the God of heaven, but we have him as pint size or bite size. We keep him on our mantle so we can take him down when we want and put him back. Some of us keep him in a locked curio cabinet so he doesn't escape during the evening. And what that has done is left us riddled with anxiety and riddled with depression because our God is not big enough to meet our needs. I speak as one of those. As we reach this brick wall and I come to you and say, well, he's transcendent, he's incomprehensible. I understand that doesn't move you. It doesn't move me either. Somebody just walking up and going, ah, he's too big for you. That doesn't help. That doesn't provoke me to worship. It means nothing to me. So we must do something. I believe that we can engage with the Word of God. I believe that we can allow the love of God to permeate our lives. I believe we can engage with what we do understand. I believe that we can pray to Him. I believe that we can see Him and other people around us. I think we can do a lot of things to begin our pathway of understanding God. But we have a short time this morning. So would you go with me to Scripture, to two different passages, the first being Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. It is page 386 in the Bible that was handed to you. That's Psalm 
chapter 8. If you have a Bible, please turn there so you can follow along with us. I have but one main thrust of my message this morning, and that is to fill in the blank in front of you. God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our praise. Now, if you've been in the church for any length of time, that is cliche. It's something you stick on your fridge and you're already bored. So let me pull it apart for you. God is worthy. In other words, he deserves it. He didn't ask you how you felt about it. He is worthy of our praise. What is praise? It's telling him how great he is. And telling other people how great he is. He is deserves that because he's awesome. Now, if you have ever walked out of a worship service, do you realize that's what the first part of the church is? Have you thought about that? Okay, we call it the worship part. All right. It's not concert part. All right. So if you've ever walked out and said, yeah, I wasn't really into worship today. You missed the whole point. I don't want to hear that because it isn't for you. If this is a concert and this is entertainment, that's the most boring band I've ever seen. (laughs) Especially the drummer. (laughs) Don't ever stock up in church. (laughs) Why? They're just standing there. Come on. Get a little fog machine going. Go 80s. Go retro rock. What are you doing? Do something because you're not entertaining me. It is participatory. It is not observation time. You don't walk in here and go, I don't know if I was moved or not. It isn't for you. It's for God. So when you walk in here, you bring it. You come in here and you engage with God on whatever level that you can. That's what worship is. God is worthy of our praise, whether you feel like it or not. Because he is amazing. The first phrase in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, is the same as verse 9. Did you notice that? So, praise the Lord, we just got to cut one out from our study. That's excellent. Now we only have eight, okay? So, let's take a look at this phrase. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, let's pull it apart. The first word you will notice is, If you're reading NIV, capital L-O-R-D, that is the personal name of God, which is? All right. It's a silent name, one that you don't want to say, apparently. Very shrouded in mystery. No, it's Yahweh, okay? You're probably not going to get that one wrong. It's all right. The personal name of God, Yahweh, how do we know that? Well, in Exodus chapter 3, God called a man named Moses through the burning bush. You remember that story? And as he approached him, God said, Moses, I want you to be my man. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And so Moses said, I don't think I'm the guy. And they had a little argument about that. And then he said, no, you really got to go. And he said, all right, but if I go, they're going to ask me who sent me. So what's your name? And God gave him a very odd response. Moses wanted to write a little thing on a banner and hold it up and say, this guy called me and this is the God and here's his name and I'm his man. So he said, what's your name? And what was God's response? I am that I am. That is the weirdest, weakest response I've ever heard. It's like, God, that's not helping. Okay, when they ask you, well, he is what he is. And they're like, that's lame. That's not, that can't be God's name. 
God, what are you saying? I'm telling you, kid, that you wouldn't get it if I told you. I'm telling you that you couldn't even comprehend what I'm like. So I'm going to tell you, I just am what I am. And everything that I am, I'm that too. So he begins to have a bit of a mind bender. And so they call it Yahweh. And as it's been translated throughout the time, it it got a very odd translation and turned into Jehovah at one point. And so a lot of people go, God's name is Jehovah. Well, that's a messed up translation of Yahweh. Okay. So it begins with the personal name of God. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. Lord means master or ruler. Now, notice it's a personal statement on the behalf of David, the psalmist. Oh, Lord, our Lord, not some far off God, not somebody else's God, our God. Oh, Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name? Now, we don't use the word majestic a lot. As a matter of fact, I looked it up in the dictionary and got totally confused. It basically, the best way I can describe it is the beautiful splendor fit for a king. Why? Because in the word majestic, it means beautiful. In the word majestic, it means noble or kingly. And in the word, it means splendor or regalia. So you would look up and see somebody that is a ruler, powerful and mighty, dressed in all their array, and you'd say they are majestic. How beautiful your splendor fit for a king is in all the earth, meaning in everything that I see and everything I come in contact with. Your splendor is seen. Isn't that a beautiful way to begin and end this amazing poem? Oh, Yahweh, our master, how beautiful is your splendor fit for a king. And how wonderful is your name in all the earth. Now, in the biblical use of names is a little odd. The majority of the time, a name is not how to distinguish one person from another. Where you're trying to call Bob and not Jimmy. Okay? So that Jimmy doesn't turn around every time. A name is a description of character. In other words, if they say, what's your name? They're saying, what do you like? That's why a lot of their names mean stuff. The Lord saves. God is righteous. Stuff like that. They say, well, what do you like or what are you all about? That's what means when they ask your name. And so, in an essence, when Moses asked God his name, what was he asking? What do you like? So right here, he said, your name is majestic. Your character is displayed beautifully all over the world in everywhere I see. Very poetic. He says in verse 2, From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. From the lips of children, which we know, and infants is three and under, the Hebrew phrase. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Now, ordained has two definitions to it. One is the foundation or what you set upon. It was ordained. It was started that way. It was built upon. And it also has the phrase, if you have an ordained pastor, it means he's been given or invested the right to do the priestly functions. So now we have two words mushing together with children. Through the lips of the children, God has laid a foundation and the right to praise. You see that? 
Why? Because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Now you can say, well, David was talking about foes and avengers of his time. But he's talking about God. Who is God's enemy? We say Satan. Well, Satan is enemies. As a matter of fact, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of them are a war against the kingdom of God. And so his enemies get shut down by what? The praise of the children. You say, well, are you just saying like little kids? Well, it's more than that. It's a childlike spirit. Do you remember when Jesus called the children around him, called one up on his lap, and he said to the people around him, unless you receive the kingdom like one of these, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then at another time, he called a child in among them, and he said, unless you humble yourself like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there must be some type of childlike quality of your faith in order to be saved. Now, let me see if I can explain this in a story. It does not mean naive, because children are naive. So you're saying, well, you've got to be clueless. No. No. Innocent is different than naive. Let me give you an example. When I leave the house, my two daughters, five and 18 months, go ballistic. They hate when I leave. Okay? So I walk out of the house, and it's, oh, and then my daughter goes, Daddy, Daddy, I need a hug. And then she gives me a hug. And I, need a, and I need a kiss. And then I give her a kiss. And then I run, I get to the door and she goes, Dad, 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 wait, 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 wait. I need another one. And I'm like, okay. So I'm barely getting out of the house. So I get out of the house. The little one's crying. She doesn't want to see Dad go. And then I leave. Now, when I come back in from any given point, that's even better. Because I walk in the house and the older one shouts out the proclamation. Daddy's home! And the little one's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And so she had no idea, didn't know what the door meant. So now she's like, I think it's dad. So she goes, dad, dad. And then she starts running. Well, she's slower. So she's running back there. And the first one's catching up to me. Now, what's so funny is even though my five-year-old still thinks I'm a hero and she's rapidly growing towards an age where she realizes I'm in her way to what she wants. (laughs) Even though she's still like that, it's seen perfectly in the baby. Because a lot of times I'll come home and I arrive right when Susie is um, feeding her. So she's in her high chair and she's strapped in. She can't get out. And so I walk in and she freaks out to try to see me. She can't see me because I'm always walking in behind her. She's straining to try to see me. And dad's home. She's got stuff all over her face and she just wants to be next to me. Now, she does not remember anything of what happened when I left. In other words, if we had, if I had to scold her or I had to discipline her or whatever, it's like the time that I'm gone, she's forgiven me and doesn't care. I walk back in, boom, daddy's home. My wife is older than my children. (laughs) And has a bit of a better memory. She remembers what we talked about before I left. She remembers the issues that we've engaged with throughout the last couple weeks. And sometimes when I walk in the door, it's not, Lance is home! Right? (laughs) There's something about children that just want to be with their dad. Now, I've been around new believers or people that just come to faith And it's almost like all the gates of hell can't stop these people. 
They are wanting to run out and preach to everybody. They want to preach to them twice. Once they get saved, they'll save them again. And they are just everywhere. They're talking to the people at the toll booths and they're doing, you know, I mean, it's just everything. And it's like they're running with such momentum with their head down that anything the enemy throws at, they just crash through blindly and they're running. How much discouragement does it take to knock down someone who's been a believer for a while? Oh, a couple words. There's something about a new baby that has a childlike, Lord, you saved me from where I was. And I don't care what's going on. I just want to see my father. I think that's what's being spoken of here. Through the lips of infants, you have ordained praise. He said, when I consider your heavens, meaning the visible universe, when I consider the work of your fingers, meaning the personal hands of God, when I see the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, which is a personal placement, What is man that you're mindful of him? In other words, why notice a speck on a speck in the middle of some galaxy, in the middle of somewhere in the universe? Do you realize that our planet is not all that significant in the grand scheme? We're not even in the middle of anything. We're off on the side of some type of galaxy. Our galaxy is not in the middle of the universe. It's just somewhere out there. Why would you pay attention to a little dirt clod like us? Weren't we made from dirt? Indeed we were. But not only that, look at the next phrase. The son of man or son of Adam, meaning mankind, that you care for him. He doesn't just notice, he personally takes care of. He gets down on his knees and says, honey, does your tummy hurt? Like a good daddy does. Why would you do that, Lord? When I see how powerful and mighty and how marvelous you are, why do you take time for me? He said, but not only that, you've really made us amazing. You've made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings. That word there is Elohim, which is usually used of God. But because it's used of angels, we can realize it means anyone dwelling in heaven. Therefore, he said, we've been only a little bit lower in ability. To the amazing angels. And you have crowned him with your glory and honor by placing his image within us. You have made him ruler over the works of your hands. When did we get that? In the Garden of Eden. We were given two rules regarding God's creation, which was rule and subdue. That gave us authority. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all that swims the path of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now that is worship. Do you see? Will you ever in your life be able to pen words like that? Do you see him as that? We say, Lance, that's old school. I mean, he was being poetic. He was kind of pumping things up. I mean, I don't know how accurate that was. All right, let's go new school. Here we go. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, page 869. Revelation chapter 4, page 869. In descriptions of God as incomprehensible, you are trying to capture the infinite and put it in finite terms or finite words or finite concepts. In other words, the Bible doesn't know how to describe God, so it does a lot of this. 
um, it was kind of like this. He kind of looked like that. It kind of seemed like this. In other words, there's no definites. And that's on purpose. Because you can't ever say what it was truly like. So when we read this account, you're going to say, man, he wasn't very specific. He didn't even know what he was looking at. So we begin. Now, remember, this is the apostle John, the beloved on the island of Patmos. He had been exiled there for the gospel and he has a vision. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. The word standing open is not in the Greek. It's implied. And it basically says, and I looked into the throne room. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said. Who is the voice that he heard speaking like a trumpet? Jesus Christ. And when he says speaking like a trumpet, it wasn't like the. It was the big old call to war, call to worship type trumpet. The big shofar that they would blow to call all the tribes together. It was the big, strong, powerful voice. He said, I heard it again, and it said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. What direction is he being called? Up. Why? Because he's exalted. If he would have said, come down here, that would have been an oddity. He says, come up here, and I will show you. You must come up to the level at which I'm at, which is always that which exceeds yours. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit, John said. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, he doesn't know who it is. As a matter of fact, commentators don't know who it is. Is this the full fullness of God, the triune being, the Godhead on the throne? Or is this the father? I don't know. Because we're going to refer to the son. Maybe it's the father sitting on the throne and someone, not something Someone was sitting on the throne and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. No way he was made out of Jasper. No, that's not what it said. He had the appearance of Jasper. What's Jasper? Well, I had to look that up. I had no idea. And it's a quartz like gem that comes in many different colors. So it doesn't even specify what color. Apparently, purple is its most beautiful color. But the point of this gem is its brilliance. It's a very shiny jewel. And so its point was it had the appearance of Jasper. It was brilliant. Whoever that was, was shining out. And you may say, well, why did he use the gem Jasper? Well, In the Old Testament, the high priest would wear what was called a breastplate. And he would go in to minister, and on that breastplate, to minister before Israel were 12 stones, 12 different gems. Why 12? There were 12 tribes of Israel. He was on their representation. So he came in, and they were in rows. The last gem on that breastplate was Jasper. Also, when John sees the foundations of the heavenly city of New Jerusalem... The first layer is Jasper. So that's why he's using these phrases. And when I looked at this someone sitting on the throne, his appearance was like Jasper and Carnelian. Now, Carnelian is a red or orange gem that's likened to a ruby. If you think about the deep red of a ruby. So he had this emanating brilliance and red-hued glow, 
and he's not done. And a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. You say, well, Lance, that's ridiculous. You can't have a rainbow all the same color. If it's all green, that's not a rainbow. Okay, the word used here does not only mean rainbow. In classical Greek, it's used for rainbow, but it means aura or emanating glow. So he has a glow emanating out from the throne of deep emerald green. Is this amazing? I think it was for John. Verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Now, that sounds like a council chamber or a high court. Does that mean we worship 25 gods? No, it does not. There is one high exalted throne, and then there was 24 other little thrones. Now, it says what? There were elders on those thrones. Who are these guys? Well, I'm sure there's much debate. It could just be a representation of humanity. But I find it odd that 24 is a great number to be divided by two. And it becomes what? 12. That's a pretty significant number in Scripture, is it not? How many disciples? 12. How many tribes of Israel? 12. you got old school, new school, 24. Got it? Representations of the old covenant, representations of the new covenant. We have our representation in heaven, seated around God. They were... What? Dressed in white. White is representative of purity or righteousness. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, why did they have crowns? Because God gave them crowns. He gave them a blessing upon them. You say, well, how come they got crowns and I didn't get crowns? Really? You're going to get crowns, I'll tell you that. But do you really think you have no crowns? Do you really think that the gifts and talents and abilities and beauty that you possess are not crowns given by God? You're already endowed with beauty and glory because of what God did for you and through you. They sat there with gold crowns on their head and from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Sounds a lot like last week in Isaiah chapter 6. Sounds a lot like Mount Sinai when Moses got the Ten Commandments. Boom, big old storm starts. The power of God was emanating out. What a scary sight. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. The what? The who? Better translation, sevenfold spirit of God. In other words, a completeness. Six is the number of man. Humanity. Seven is the number of completion. Just as that's where you get the term 666 from. And that's why seven is used for fullness. So this was the full intensity of the Spirit of God. Then it says, what? Also, before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass. The descriptive phrase there in Greek doesn't mean it was made of glass. That's a dumb sea. Can't put a boat in it. Just slides on the top. Okay, it's not glass. It looked like glass. It appeared like glass. It was smooth. Clear as crystal. Now, by the way, everyone says, well, why does he have to have a big old sea up there? What's that mean? God get thirsty? What's going on? Salt water? What's going on? Uh, probability is, do you remember in the Old Testament tabernacle, it was a reflection of heaven? Well, there was a basin for washing, for cleansing. That's most likely why we see a sea here. So it says what? 
In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. Uh Uh-oh. Now we see the weird creatures come out. We saw some in Isaiah, the seraphim. Do you remember them? And if you look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10, you see the cherubim. Well, you mush those two together and you get these guys. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Ew, that's weird. They're watching, they're seeing. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. What does that mean? I have no idea. And I'd read all these commentaries. Well, it means uh, representative of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nobody knows. Come on. You don't know. It's all guesses. Each of the four living creatures has six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. First thing I thought of, deodorant. That's got to get in your eye bad, doesn't it? Day and night, they were never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What did they say in Isaiah? Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His glory. What is the commonality? The threefold call of holy. What are we seeking this year? Holiness. And then what? Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down. Fall down? What do you mean fall down? They trip? They got off their thrones and they fell before the throne of God. Now what's interesting is the same phrase used there for fall down has many, 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 many uses in Scripture. One of them I found interesting. It says to come to an end. And I thought, what a beautiful description where they gave up everything and came to an end before God. And just said, you are worth everything. It's all about you. It's not about my throne. It's not about my crown. How do we know that? Well, look at the next phrase. They lay their crowns before the throne. Why is that? It's taking off whatever men has given them, whatever God has given them, their gifts and talents and abilities, and all that they are and all that they've been praised for, rip it right off their head and say it's only good for you and throw it before His throne and fall down in worship. And what do they say? You are worthy, God. You deserve it. O Lord and God, to receive glory, to receive honor, to receive power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. What does that mean? It means, God, you are our everything. Sometimes I wonder... If God would give us just a glimpse of Himself, a glimpse of His throne room, that we would be altered forever to worship properly. Perhaps that's naive. I know I couldn't handle it. And in some ways, I don't want to see it. But in another way, I do really bad. But the Bible says that Jesus said it's an evil generation that seeks for a sign. Blessed are those that don't see anything and still worship. 
friend of mine brought that to my attention after Saturday's service. We shouldn't need to see it to know that He is worthy. We shouldn't have to have a view into the throne room to fall down. Why must we always seek proof before we humble ourselves? When is God enough? When do we just fall down? R.C. Sproul said, here is the promise of God. We shall see him as he is. Theologians call this future expectation the beatific vision. We will see God as he is. This means that someday we will see God face to face. We will not see the reflected glory of a burning bush or a pillar of cloud. We shall see him as he is, as he is in his pure, divine essence. Do you long for that day? How amazing will it be to see God face to face? May we worship him today. In the same way that we will worship him on that day. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are great and mighty and glorious. And our job down here, we believe and we grab with all excitement is to promote your name in all the earth. To advance your kingdom forcefully. To tell all the world how great and mighty you are. And today is that day of testimony. And so we collectively together want to tell you that you are amazing. And when we see little glimpses into your character, we stand or sit in awe. And indeed, Father, it's only when I get to read about you that my heart finally catches up with what I know. Father, forgive us for our little view of you, how we have demoted you in our minds, how we have fashioned you into our own image instead of being fashioned into yours. May you be raised and exalted in our church, in our lives and in our homes. For you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close?
With a shout from the sky And you are coming again Take away your bride Take away your bride And here comes the king All bowed down Lift up your voices Into the land He is the king All bowed down All bowed down Lift up our voices and see the land. You are. 